This is The Conversation and I'm Jonathan Larson from TYT Investigates. And with progressives right now fighting to ensure that Democrats step up and provide needed coronavirus relief for millions of Americans facing hunger, facing eviction. I wanted to talk to Chuck Rocha, who was the senior advisor to the 2020 Sanders campaign, the presidential campaign, the author of Tio Bernie, the inside story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos into the political revolution, and is the president of both the Nuestro Political Action Committee, as well as his own political consulting firm, Solidarity Strategies. And I wanted to talk to you, Chuck, about both where the Democrats are today, the fight over COVID relief, and where they're gonna be next year. So Chuck, thanks for joining us. Jonathan, thanks for having me. And I think that it's a unique time you know, in the Congress when you see everybody fighting on trying to get as much relief as we can. I think there's a common theme that amongst progressives, moderates, and some Republicans that something needs to be done, something has to be done. I think there's a lot of people really hurting and struggling. I just really think that the Republicans now are all of a sudden gonna become fiscal hawks, which they weren't when we were giving tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires with tax cuts. But now that poor working class Americans could really use some relief after a year long COVID struggle, it's almost depressing to watch this debate take place. Well, interestingly, it's interesting that you mentioned that sort of uh, that uh, ideological range, right? We're seeing even some Republicans step up and saying, going publicly, saying uh, the danger is not going too too uh, small, uh, too big. The danger is going too small, but but it doesn't seem quite like all the Democratic leadership is on board with that, right? First, we had the the uh, the two thousand dollar check became fourteen hundred based on the idea that well six hundred already went out the door and now there are others there's other conversations going on around means testing and and you know questions about what other aid might look like as well so where are um, where in your view is is the White House on this and where are where's the Democratic leadership would you say? Well, I think two people to keep your eye on is obviously the president who said everybody's gonna get $1,400. It's just who's gonna get $1,400. Where do they put the cap on who is eligible for $1,400? And I think that our good friend, my good friend, my former boss, Senator Bernie Sanders is a chairman, I love saying that, of the Senate Budgetary Committee. And he's like, look, it's gonna be $1,400. And I'm gonna try to get as many people the $1,400 as they can. And I think they're gonna try to get together, as you said, and pass the largest bill that they can. Now, will there be alternative voices? Will there be people saying that it's gotta be less than $1.9 trillion? Yes, there will be. But I think with you watching the budget reconciliation bill, knowing now that they've only gotta have 50 votes plus one, which would be the vice president, they're gonna have as robust a package as possible. And there's one thing that Democrats, I hope, have learned a lesson of, and that's the first term of Barack Obama when we controlled all three levers of government and kind of wasted that power and thought that we could get Republicans to go along with us and at the end didn't get that much accomplished. I think Democrats have now learned better. And do do you do you think that calculus holds true on the uh, on the minimum wage as well? We're seeing, uh, if I remember correctly, Joe Manchin was not happy about uh, fifteen dollar minimum wage being included in in this sort of overall package. Is is have if Democrats have learned their lesson? How are they going to deal with Manchin, and how did they learn that lesson? 
Well, there's one thing that's really encouraging, and I've been saying this to progressives and making them angry all week as we talk about trying to hold Joe Biden accountable and making sure he's as progressive as he needs to be and talking about Joe Manchin being a problem. Well, as soon as he rolled this thing out, he sent Kamala Harris up to West Virginia to start having interviews in West Virginia and made Joe Manchin mad. Now, people are like, why would you want to make him mad? I'm like, well, you were just hollering last week about how we keep him accountable. You keep him accountable by using the bully pulpit, just like Donald Trump did and showing up in West Virginia going, you know, there's a lot of folks here in West Virginia that could use a $1,400 check and could use $15 minimum wage. That's how you pressure Joe Manchin. And as long as Bernie Sanders is the chairman of the budget committee in the Senate, you're gonna see $15 minimum wage stay there. The only way I can see them backing away from that is them instituting it over a longer period of time where there's more of a gradual rolling in of that, which I think will then eventually get all of these centrist Democrats on board. So you think that that if people weren't aware of this, right? Kamala Harris had this appearance on West Virginia television, right? At the vice president and essentially blindsided Manchin. And he, he griped about that publicly. And, and the perception I got just reading it in the trades was that uh, this was a misstep by the, by the White House. You're suggesting, and I don't know how informed you are or not, I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to hear. But you're suggesting this wasn't a misstep, this was a conscious shot across the bow. Yes, I can almost guarantee you that it was, and I do not work for Joe Biden. I do not work at the White House, but I've been doing campaigns for 31 years. And if you need one senator who's got a lot of poor white people in his state to be on board with you, and the first interview you do is with the largest West Virginia TV outlet, that was very purposeful. And and uh, progressives should take that as something that's a positive if he ain't scared to do that with his first action out of the bat. The, is the calculation there that that Manchin is not willing to be the one Democrat who is uh, has has fingers pointed at him for sinking a relief bill? Is that is that the raw political calculation here? It is, and it's, it's one of the few things that I think you actually have leverage on him are, which is the economy, which is COVID relief money, which is minimum wage with the state that's ultra poor, low right. in education. They need money. They have a lot of federal assistance. You ain't gonna get Joe Manchin to meet you halfway on a cap and trade bill or anything around the environment, anything around gun rights, anything around good old redneck values in West Virginia. But on $15 minimum wage or saying you ain't gonna get $1,400, he don't wanna be between you and your money, even though he's not up for reelection, I would remind everybody till 2024. Right, right. So, so. It, the one question I do have in terms of what Democratic voters want, right? Cuz that's part of your job, right, is to know that. So. Are Democratic voters, were they last year saying, you know what, if I just got $2,000, then I don't have to worry about being evicted anymore. I don't have to worry about feeding my family. I don't have to worry about paying my bills. Were they saying to give me $2,000 or were they saying make sure that my basics are met, period? In other words, are Democrats still even lowballing compared to where voters wanted them to be and what voters will reward them for or punish them for in 2022, 2024. Let's be clear, voters are never going to be satisfied with whatever you give them because it's their tax dollars. They wanna get the maximum that they can. And when you see our government fight for six months to see if we might give them $600, then you start seeing things like the the results in the Georgia Senate elections, which were astronomical for a state like Georgia, which I mean yeah. by a state like Georgia being a Republican state. So the electorate for the last four, six years have been really, really aggravated. So much so that they would 
vote for a orange carnival marker to be their president. Like that's how crazy the electorate is, right? From jumping from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. So there's a lot of anxiety. Then when you add in COVID and you have it killing brown and black people at three times the rate as white people and poor people, no matter what the color of your skin, not being able to make rent. There's just a lot of an undertow of anxiety Then thinking Democrats or Republicans really don't care about us. So you think there's, it sounds like you're saying that that the Biden administration is calculating not only do we need to come through in a big visible way, but there's real political advantage to doing it fast, regardless of whether there are complaints about bipartisanship, so that voters see, oh wow, bam, Biden came in, wham, this happened. Is that, am I reading that right? Oh my God, you hit it right on the nail. That's why he said it's not worried about it being too big, but too small. And he's saying, I'm going to yeah. push this through, even if I don't have one single, because one single Republican, because he's got to get something done. He's got to get it done quickly. And he's got to show the American people there's a new sheriff in town and there's going to be law and order. And we're going to do exactly what we can do. And I'm going to fight like you know what every single day to get you as much relief as I can. That's how he knows he can have any chance of winning midterm elections in 2022. I want to bounce this phrase off of you that I keep hearing. I've heard it from the White House. I hear it from other Democrats. They say the Democratic plan is designed to help people who've lost their jobs through no fault of their own. And and to me, the, the what I keep hearing there is, oh, so we're not gonna help someone because some middle manager decided they didn't do a good job or maybe even they genuinely screwed up. To me, you know what I mean? Like, are, are Democrats really saying if you put the widget in the wrong thingamajig, you don't deserve to get relief? Why add that language in there? Because there's some woke white consultant who says that's what you should be putting in there so we don't offend anybody. That's exactly why our system has been broken since day one and why I haven't been put out of business in 31 years. Because a lot of times I'll tell them how the cow eats the corn. People just want some help. They want relief. There's a small group of people that are Democrats, another small group that are Republicans. And most folks just want to know what you, Mr. Politician or Mrs. Politician, are going to do to make my life better. Uh, real quickly before we go, um, talking about the, you know the people who gravitated towards Trump, we we saw he he did surprisingly well with the Latino community, and and given that that's more than one community, right? We're talking about multiple communities in there. What, what happened there, and what do Democrats need to do? Joe Biden won the Latino vote and did really well in most of the states. But did Donald Trump overperform in a place like Miami-Dade? Oh my gosh, by 22 points because he spent time and money going and talking to Cubans early and often and built a real program. And in the Valley of Texas, where there are Democrats there and Joe Biden won them, he underperformed there as well because there wasn't a competitive alternative narrative. So when you're talking this machismo thing to Latinos who ain't hearing a message from anybody else who wear cowboy hat and belt buckles like me, you can get four or five people over on your side. Chuck Rocha, if people want to find your book, they can check you out online at toburniebook.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Chuck. Thanks for having me. President Biden has now signed his executive order undoing President Trump's ban on transgender service in the United States military. But that doesn't mean that the battle is over, the civil rights battle for transgender members of the military. So I wanted to speak with Zeke Stokes. Uh, who is a Democratic strategist, formerly a vice president with GLAAD and founder of ZS Strategies. Zeke, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, I really appreciate it. So the, the I think people tend to imagine, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I think people tend to imagine that the way this works is Biden snaps his fingers and then poof, the military transforms 
overnight into a welcoming, inclusive place for not just serving transgender members of the military, but also new recruits. Can you can you disabuse me of that if I'm wrong about that? And if so, talk a little bit about what what kind of issues still lie ahead regarding transgender service in the military. Sure, well actually in ordinary times you might be incorrect about that, but you actually are sort of on the money there. It is a little bit of a snap of the fingers and that's because prior to Donald Trump imposing this ban in 2017 when he became president, a ton of work had gone into lifting the transgender ban under former President Obama. In fact, the Department of Defense had done a study back in 2016 that showed that having open trans service would be neither compromising to military readiness, unit cohesion, or any of the other things that make our military strong. So a lot of the work had been done. And in fact, the service chiefs and the Department of Defense had in fact said to President Obama, we can do this. And it was very much underway when Donald Trump took office and actually undid it with the snap of his fingers, otherwise known as an executive order. And and um, so in terms of uh, uh, what this means right now, I think the biggest sort of impact is uh, someone who is transgender can now join the military again. But I would imagine, that, it'll, sorry, go ahead. No, that's exactly right, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, but but I don't think we've heard as much about what kind of experience have the existing transgender serving members of the military had during the entire Trump administration, both leading up to his his order, his ban, as well as in in the time since since then and after it was implemented. What has that experience been like? For those people serving their country, serving in uniform who were transgender. Well, you can imagine it's been incredibly disruptive. They were in in many cases beginning to serve openly. You know, we've had about 138,000 transgender veterans who've served our military over the years. And we've got about 15,000 or so serving right now. So a lot of those folks were serving, beginning to serve openly, beginning to come out to their unit leaders and their comrades when Donald Trump really reversed this very quickly in 2016. So in a lot of ways, those who are currently serving have been left in limbo. And a lot of these are service members on the front lines doing really, really important jobs to keep us safe here at home and abroad. So what this does is is, is finally allows them to sleep at night knowing that they're not gonna get kicked out tomorrow for, for being their authentic selves, for serving openly and honestly. And it allows other brave patriots across our country, transgender patriots who may want to serve in our military to enlist. It's also going to do one more thing and that is take a look at any service members who were discharged under this Trump policy. Take a look at their their service records and their discharge records and correct those and if needed and try to try to make those wrongs right again. And if I remember correctly, and again, please correct me. It, the Biden's executive order and the White House statement explicitly said, I am ordering a review of all these disposition reports and reports on transgender members of the military, their status and whether or not they were discharged or any of those things. That that was a very conscious, explicit part of this. So so um what what does that mean now for for the people whose whose status is now going to be reviewed? Do we have a sense of what that looks like for them? 
In some cases, when, when someone's discharged from the military, they get something called a DD-214. And it outlines all of the circumstances of your discharge. And in some cases, these service members may have been discharged in a way that would allow them to reenlist. So there may have been no other mitigating factors except for the fact that they came out as transgender. Now, the reality is I don't believe there were many transgender discharges during this period of time because these service members, 15,000 or so of them, had already Already begun to serve openly. They were out to their commands. They were doing a lot of important work for our military. And so suddenly discharging 15,000 trans service members would have been incredibly disruptive to our military. The very thing that President Trump at the time said he was trying to avoid was disruption to the military. And so, but in the cases that there were discharges that were unjust and shouldn't have happened, President Biden, as you said, has ordered a review and hopefully those can be corrected. You know, in some cases, those folks may not be in a position in their lives where they want to rejoin, reenlist. But in some cases they may and they ought to have the opportunity to do that. It sounds like you're saying that their, their integration right into their individual units as well as the institution of the military was, was fairly good, right? That, that it would have been disruptive to uproot them because the military had, if not, if not institutionally, officially on a, on a ground level, accepted these folks and or didn't care, maybe in some cases didn't know. But right now, especially post January 6th, we're also looking at issues of whether there are strains of violent extremism within the military. So we're talking about kind of a range, it's a vast institution, obviously. We're talking about a range of of cultural and social folks who are within the military. What's the transgender experience been like either before during and now after the the Trump ban in terms of acceptance by this by this institution which has all these cliches and cultural tropes about it a lot of which are tightly connected with toxic masculinity right so i'm i'm curious what the where the experience has been along that sort of range well, I don't want to speak for trans service members um, to their their own personal lived experiences because I haven't had those experiences myself, so I can't do that. Sure. But I will say there's been a big range of experiences. I, I co-produced a film uh, in 2018 called Trans Military. We followed a number of transgender service members and veterans through the course of their service and their discharges over the course of about five years. When Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed back in 2011, it did not cover trans service members. So that fight was very separate. So I worked on this documentary with a number of amazing colleagues, and we followed these trans service members, some of whom were serving openly in Afghanistan, even before the ban was lifted during the Obama years. They were out of their commands, they were doing important jobs, and they were serving very successfully and very honorably. And I think the core message that we need Americans to hear and others to hear is that Trans people can serve our military openly, authentically, and with the same level of capability and an outstanding service as any other service member. And they ought to be able to do it without discrimination. One thing we we heard a lot about, including falsely, if I remember correctly, from President Trump, was this notion that the healthcare costs attached to any given transgender service member were vastly out of proportion with the rest of the force, the military. And that's the study from my paltry reading on this. The study you referred to, 
in back in 2016 sort of debunked that notion years ago as far as I'm aware or maybe maybe it was more recently. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about how that came to be such a talking point to the extent that I think it actually still has some power at least on the right today. Yeah, you know, I think you know this this trans military band that Trump initiated didn't happen in a vacuum. It was a part of a larger effort to target trans people and other marginalized communities by the Trump administration. And this healthcare talking point just became a bit of a convenient talking point that really played into a lot of fears and misinformation among among Americans. But the fact is, as you stated, that the 2016 study by the Department of Defense showed a I think the the increased cost to healthcare service, overall healthcare service for or healthcare for service members with open trans service would have would have been 0.001%, a tiny, tiny, minuscule yeah. piece of of support for these service members, and that's one of the bargains, in fact, that we make with with Americans when they join our military that we're going to take care of their healthcare, we're going to take care of their families, right. and in return, they're going to serve they're going to serve and protect. Our country and fight and in some cases die for us. So healthcare is the least we can do for these brave service members. And that you know that point that you made from from the former president was you know as he might like to say just fake news. Does this feel to you like if let's say a Republican, a Tom Cotton, someone relatively mainstream Republican for today? becomes president in 2024. Does this feel to you culturally like something the Republican Party is poised to try again? Or have we reached sort of a tipping point as we do with a lot of these social movements that you've been you know, involved in where, where Republicans end up sort of coming around and the culture fight moves on to something else? How do you feel like, what's the status for, for 2024 would you say? Just quickly give a guess. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have to revisit this again. You know, the the military has always paved the way for larger social change. If you look at desegregating the the ranks racially, if you look at women in the service academies, if you look at don't ask, don't tell, repeal, those things preceded other big leaps in social justice and equality. And I think we'll see that case here as well. That's a great point. Zeke Stokes, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you.